and the distribution of the gains of commerce among the countries of the commercial world. Part 2. In what shape the benefit accrues to the two nations from the trade is clear enough. Germany, before the commencement of the trade, paid six shillings per yard for broadcloth. She now obtains it at a lower price. This, however, is not the whole of her advantage. As the money prices of all her other commodities have risen, the money incomes of all her producers have increased. This is no advantage to them in buying from each other, because the price of what they buy has risen in the same ratio with their means of paying for it. But it is an advantage to them in buying anything which has not risen, anything which has fallen. They therefore benefit as consumers of cloth, not merely to the extent to which cloth has fallen, but also to the extent to which other prices have risen. Suppose that this is one-tenth. The same proportion of their money incomes as before will suffice to supply their other wants, and the remainder being increased one-tenth in amount will enable them to purchase one-tenth more cloth than before, even though cloth had not fallen. But it has fallen, so that they are doubly gainers. If they do not choose to increase their consumption of cloth, this does not prevent them from being gainers. They purchase the same quantity with less money and have more to expend upon their own wants. In England, on the contrary, general monetary prices have fallen. Linen, however, has fallen more than the rest, having been lowered in price by importation from a country where it was cheaper, whereas the others have fallen only from the consequent efflux of money. Notwithstanding, therefore, the general fall of money prices, the English producers will be exactly as they were in all other respects, while they will gain as purchasers of linen. The greater the efflux of money required to restore the equilibrium, the greater will be the gain of Germany, both by the fall of cloth and by the rise of her general prices. The less the influx of money requisite, the greater will be the gain of England, because the price of linen will continue lower, and her general prices will not be reduced so much. It must not, however, be imagined that high money prices are a good and low money prices an evil in themselves, but the higher the general money prices in any country, the greater will be that country's means of purchasing those commodities which being imported from abroad are independent of the causes which keep prices high at home. We have hitherto supposed the carriage to be performed without labor or expertise. If we abandon this supposition, we must correct the statement of the case in a slight degree. The prices of the two articles will no longer, when the trade is opened, be the same in both countries, nor will the articles exchange for one another at the same rate in both. Ten yards of cloth will purchase in Germany a quantity of linen greater than in England by a percentage equal to the entire cost of conveyance both of the cloth to Germany and of the linen to England. The money price of linen will be higher in England than in Germany by the cost of carriage of the linen. The money price of cloth will be higher in Germany than in England by the cost of carriage of the cloth. The expense of the carriage is evidently a deduction 
pro tanto from the saving of labor produced by the establishment of the trade. The two countries together, therefore, have their gains by the trade diminished by the amount of the cost of carriage of both commodities. But here the question arises, which of the two countries bears this deduction, or in what proportion is it divided between them? At the first inspection it would appear that each country bears its own cost of carriage. That is, that each country pays the carriage of the commodity which it imports. Upon this supposition, each country would gain whatever share of the joint savings of labor would otherwise fall to its lot, minus the cost of bringing from the other country the commodity which it imports. This solution is rendered plausible by the circumstance just now mentioned, that the price of the commodity will be higher in the country which imports it than in the country which exports it, by the amount of the cost of carriage. If linen is sold in England at a higher price than in Germany, by a percentage equal to the cost of carriage of the linen, it appears obvious that England pays for the carriage of the linen, and Germany, by parity of reason, for that of the cloth. But if we apply these questions to principles already explained, we shall see that this is not by any means a universal law. The fact may correspond with it, or it may not. For suppose that the articles have adjusted themselves no matter how, and that the imports and exports balance one another. Each commodity, of course, being dearer by the cost of carriage, in the country which imports than in that which exports it, and suppose now that the cost of carriage, both of the one and the other, were suddenly and miraculously annihilated, and that the commodities could pass from country to country without expense. If each country bore its own cost of carriage before, each country will save its own cost of carriage now. Cloth in Germany will in that case fall exactly to what it is in England, linen in England to what it is in Germany. Now this fall in price, supposing it to happen, will probably affect the demand on both sides, and it will either affect it alike in both countries, or it will affect it unequally. It will affect it alike if the fall of price does not affect the demand at all, or if it affects it equally in both countries. If either of these results should take place, the cloth and the linen would continue to balance each other out as before. No money would pass from one country to the other. Prices in both would continue at the point to which they had fallen, and each country would exactly save the cost of carriage on the commodity which it imports from the other. But the result might be that the fall of price might not have an effect exactly equal on the demand in the two countries. Suppose, for instance, that the fall of cloth in Germany, owing to the saving of the cost of carriage, did not increase the demand for cloth in Germany, but that the fall of linen in England, from a like cause, did increase the demand for linen in England. The linen imported would be more than could be paid for by the cloth exported. The difference must be paid in money. The change in the distribution of the precious metals between the two countries would lower the price of the cloth in England, and consequently in Germany, while it would raise the price of linen in Germany, and consequently in England. Germany, therefore, by the annihilation of cost of carriage, would save in price more than the cost of carriage of the cloth. England would save less in price than the cost of carriage of the linen. But if, by the miraculous annihilation of cost of carriage, England would not save the whole of the carriage of her imports, it follows that England did not previously pay the whole of that cost of carriage. 
Thus, the division of the cost of trade and the division of the advantage of trade are governed by precisely the same principles. And the only general proposition which can be affirmed respecting the cost is that it is pro tanto a deduction from the advantage. It cannot even be maintained that the cost is shared in the same proportion as the advantage is, because the increase of the demand for a commodity as its price falls is not governed by any fixed laws. Suppose, for instance, that the advantage happened to be divided equally. This must be because the greater cheapness arising from the establishment of the trade either did not affect the demand at all, or affected it in an equal proportion on both sides. Now, because such is the effect of the degree of increased cheapness resulting from the importation burden with cost of carriage, it would not follow that the still greater degree of cheapness produced by the additional savings of the cost of carriage itself would also affect the demand of both countries in precisely an equal degree. But if we cannot be said to bear an expense which, if saved, would be saved to somebody else and not to us. Two countries may have equal shares of the clear benefit of the trade, while, if the cost of carriage were saved, they would divide the savings unequally. If so, they divide the gross gain in one unequal ratio, the cost in another unequal ratio. Though their shares of the cost being deducted from their shares of the gain leave equal remainders. The question naturally suggests itself whether any country by its own legislative policy can engross to itself a larger share of the benefit of foreign commerce than would fall to it in the natural or spontaneous course of trade. The answer is, it can. By taxing exports, for instance, we may under certain circumstances produce a division of the advantage of the trade more favorable to ourselves. In some cases, we may draw into our coffers the expense of foreigners, not only the whole tax, but more than the tax in other cases. We should gain exactly the tax, in others less than the tax. In this case, a part of the tax is borne by ourselves, possibly the whole, possibly even, as we shall show, more than the whole. Suppose that England taxes her export of cloth, the tax not being supposed high enough to induce Germany to produce cloth for herself. The price at which cloth can be sold in Germany is augmented by the tax. This will probably diminish the quantity consumed. It may diminish it so much that even at the increased price there will not be required so great a money value as before. It may diminish it in such a ratio that the money value of the quantity consumed will be exactly the same as before or it may not diminish it at all, or so little that in consequence, the higher price, a greater monetary value will be purchased than before. In this last case, England will gain at the expense of Germany not only the whole amount of the duty, but more. For the money value of her exports to Germany being increased, while her imports remain the same, money will flow into England from Germany price of cloth will rise in England and consequently in Germany, but the price of linen will fall in Germany and consequently in England. We shall export less cloth and import more linen, till the equilibrium is restored. It thus appears what is at first sight somewhat remarkable that by taxing exports England would, under some conceivable circumstances, not only gain from her foreign customers the whole amount of the tax, 
but would also get her import cheaper. She would get them cheaper in two ways, for she would obtain them for less money, and would have more money to purchase them in Germany. On the other hand, would suffer doubly, she would have to pay for her cloth a price increased not only by the duty, but by the influx of money into England, while the same change in the distribution of the circulating medium would leave her less money to purchase it with. This, however, is only one of three possible cases. If, after the imposition of the duty, Germany requires so diminished a quantity of cloth that its total money value is exactly the same as before, the balance of trade will be undisturbed. England will gain the duty, Germany will lose it, and nothing more. If, again, the imposition of the duty occasions such a falling off in the demand that Germany requires a less pecuniary value than before, our exports will no longer pay for our imports, money must pass from England into Germany, and Germany's share of the advantage of the trade will be increased. By the change in the distribution of money, cloth will fall in England, and therefore it will, of course, fall in Germany. Thus, Germany will not pay the whole of the tax. From the same cause, linen will rise in Germany, and consequently in England. When this alteration of prices has so adjusted the demand that the cloth and the linen again pay for one another, the result is that Germany has paid only part of the tax, and the remainder of what has been received into our treasury has come indirectly out of the pockets of our own customers of linen, who pay a higher price for the imported commodity in consequence of the tax on our exports which at the same time they, in consequence of the efflux of money and consequent fall of prices, have smaller money incomes wherewith to pay for the linen at that advanced price. It is not an impossible supposition that, by taxing our exports, we might not only gain nothing from the foreigner, the tax being paid out of our own pockets, but might even compel our own people to pay a second tax to the foreigner. Suppose as before that the demand of Germany for cloth falls off so much on the imposition of the duty that she requires a smaller money value than before, but that the case is so different with linen in England that when the price rises the demand either does not fall off at all, or so little that the money value required is greater than before. The first effect of laying on the duty is therefore that the cloth exported will no longer pay for the linen imported. Money will therefore flow out of England into Germany. One effect is to raise the price of linen in Germany and consequently in England. But this, by the supposition, instead of stopping the efflux of money, only makes it greater, because the higher the price, the greater the money value of the linen consumed. The balance, therefore, can only be restored by the other effect, which is going on at the same time namely the fall of cloth in England, and consequently in the German market. Even when cloth has fallen so low that its price with the duty is only equal to what the price without the duty was at first, it is not a necessary consequence that the fall will stop. For the same amount of exportation as before will not now suffice to pay the increased money value of the imports. And although the German consumers have now not only cloth at the old price, but likewise increased money incomes, it is not certain that they will be inclined to employ the increase of their incomes in increasing their purchases of cloth. The price of cloth, therefore, must perhaps fall to restore the equilibrium, more than the whole amount of the duty. 
Germany may be enabled to import cloth at a lower price when it is taxed than when it was untaxed, and this gain she will acquire at the expense of English consumers of linen, who, in addition, will be the real payers of the whole of what is received at their own custom house under the name of duties on the export of cloth. Such are the extremely various effects which may result to ourselves and to our customers from the imposition of taxes and the beginning circumstances are of a nature so imperfectly ascertainable that it must be impossible to decide with any certainty, even after the tax has been imposed, whether we have been gainers by it or losers. Begin footnote. We have not deemed it necessary to enter minutely into all the circumstances which might modify the results mentioned in the text. For example, let us revert to the first case, that in which the demand for cloth in Germany is so little affected by the rise of price in consequence of the tax that the quantity bought exceeds in pecuniary value what it was before. As the German consumers lay out more money in cloth, they have less to lay out in other things. Other money prices will fall, among the rest that of linen, and this may so increase the demand for linen in England as to restore the equilibrium of exports and imports without any passage of money. But England's treasury will gain from Germany the whole of the tax, and the English people will buy their linen cheaper besides. Again, the opposite case, where the tax so diminishes the demand that a smaller pecuniary value is required than before, the German consumers have, therefore, more to expend on other things. These, and among the rest, linen, will rise, and this may so diminish the demand for linen in England as to restore the equilibrium without the transmission of money. But the effect as respects the division of the advantage is still as stated in the text. End footnote. It is certain, however, that whatever we gain is lost by somebody else, and there is the expense of the collection besides. If international morality, therefore, were rightly understood and acted upon, such taxes as being contrary to the universal wheel would not exist. Moreover, the imposition of such a tax frequently will, and always may, expose a country to lose this branch of its trade altogether, or to carry it on with diminished advantage. In consequence of the competition of untaxed exports from other countries, or of the domestic producers in the country to which it exports. Even on the most selfish principles, therefore, the benefit of such a tax is always extremely precarious. We have had an example of a tax on exports, that is, on foreigners, falling in part on ourselves. We shall therefore not be surprised when we find a tax on imports, that is, on ourselves, partly falling upon foreigners. Instead of taxing the cloth which we export, suppose that we tax the linen which we import. The duty which we are now supposing must not be what is termed a protective duty, that is, a duty sufficiently high to induce us to produce the article at home. If it had this effect, it would destroy entirely the trade, both in cloth and in linen, and both countries would lose the whole of the advantage which they previously gained by exchanging those commodities with one another. We suppose a duty which might diminish the consumption of the article, but which would not prevent us from continuing to import it as before, whatever linen we did consume. The equilibrium of trade would be distributed if the imposition of the tax diminished in the slightest degree the quantity of linen consumed. 
For as the tax is levied at our own customs house, the German exporter only receives the same price as formerly, though the English consumer pays a higher one. If, therefore, there be any diminution of the quantity bought, although a larger sum of money can be actually laid out in the article, a smaller one will be due from England to Germany. This sum will no longer be equivalent for the sum due from Germany to England for cloth. The balance, therefore, must be paid in money. Prices will fall in Germany and rise in England. Linen will fall in the German market. Cloth will rise in the English. The Germans will pay higher prices for cloth and will have smaller money incomes to buy it with, while the English will obtain linen cheaper. That is, its price will exceed what it previously was by less than the amount of the duty, while their means of purchasing it will increase by the increase of their money incomes. If the imposition of the tax does not diminish the demand, it will leave the trade exactly as it was before. We shall import as much and export as much. The whole of the tax will be paid by our own pockets. But the imposition of a tax on a commodity almost always diminishes the demand more or less, and it can never, or scarcely ever, increase the demand. It may therefore be laid down as a principle that a tax on imported commodities, when it really operates as a tax and not as a prohibition, either total or partial, almost always falls in part upon the foreigners who consume our goods, and that this is a mode in which a nation may be almost sure of appropriating to itself, at the expense of foreigners, a larger share than would otherwise belong to it of the increase in the general productiveness of the labor and capital of the world, which results from the interchange of commodities among nations. It is scarcely necessary to observe that no such advantage can result from the duty if it operates as a protecting duty. If it induced the country which imposed it to produce for herself that which she would otherwise have imported, the saving of labor, the increase in the general productiveness of the capital of the world, which is the effect of commerce, and which a non-protecting duty would enable the country imposing it to engross, would not be engrossed by a protecting duty, because such a duty prevents any such increased production from existing. With a view to practical legislation, therefore, duties on importation may be divided into two classes, those which have the effect of encouraging some peculiar branch of domestic industry, and those which have not. The former are purely mischievous, both to the country imposing them and to those with whom it trades. They prevent a savings of labor and capital, which, if permitted to be made, would be divided in some proportion or other between the importing country and the countries which buy what the country does not or might export. The other class of duties are those which do not encourage one mode of procuring an article in, at the expense of another, but allow interchange to take place just as if the duty did not exist, and to produce the saving of labor which constitutes the motive to international as to all other commerce. Of this kind are duties on the importation of any commodity which could not by any possibility be produced at home. The duties not sufficiently high to counterbalance the difference of expense between the production of the article at home and its importation. Of the money which is brought into the treasury of any country by taxes of this last description, a part only is paid by the people of that country and the remainder by the foreign consumers of their goods. Nevertheless, this latter kind of taxes are in principle as ineligible as the former, 
although not precisely on the same ground. A protecting duty can never be a cause of gain, but always and necessarily a loss. To the contrary, imposing it just so far as it is efficacious to its end. A non-protecting duty on the country would in most cases be a source of gain to the country imposing it, in so far as throwing part of the weight of its taxes upon the people is a gain. But it would be a means of gain which it could seldom be advisable to adopt, being so easily counteracted by a precisely similar protecting on the other side. If England, in the case already supposed, sought to obtain for herself more than her natural share of the advantage of the trade with Germany by imposing a duty upon cloth, Germany would only have to impose a duty upon linen sufficient to diminish the demand for that article about as much as the demand for cloth had been diminished in England by the tax. Things would then be as before, and each country would pay its own tax, unless indeed the sum of the two duties exceeded the entire advantage of the trade, for in that case the trade and its advantage would cease entirely. There would be no advantage, therefore, in imposing duties of this kind, with a view to gain by them in the manner which had been pointed out. But so long as any other kind of taxes on commodities are retained as a source of revenue, these may often be as unobjectionable as the rest. It is evident, moreover, that considerations of reciprocity, which are quite unessential when the matter in debate is a protecting duty, are of material importance when the repeal of duties of this other description is discussed. A country cannot be expected to renounce the power of taxing foreigners unless foreigners will, in return, practice toward itself the same forbearance. The only mode in which a country can save itself from being a loser by the duties imposed by another country on its commodities is to impose corresponding duties on theirs. Only it must take care that these duties be not so high as to exceed all that remains of the advantage of the trade and put an end to the importation altogether, causing the article to be either produced at home or imported from another and a dearer market. It is not necessary to apply the principles which we have stated to the case of bounties on exportation or importation. The application is easy, and the conclusions present nothing of particular interest or importance. Any cause which alters the exports or imports from one country to another alters the division of the advantage of interchange between these two countries. Suppose the discovery of a new process by which some article of export or some article not previously exported can be produced so cheap as to occasion a great demand for it in other countries. This, of course, produces a great influx of money from other countries and lowers the prices of all articles imported from them. Until the increase of importation produced by this cause has restored the equilibrium. Thus, the country which acquires a new article of export gets its imports cheaper. This is not a cause of mere alteration in the division of the advantage. It is a new advantage created by the discovery. But suppose that the invention to which the nation is indebted for this increase of the return to its industry comes into use also in the other country and that the process is one that can be as perfectly and as cheaply performed in the one country as the other. The new exportation will cease. Trade will revert to its old channels. The money which flowed in will again flow out, and the country which 
invented the process will lose the increase of its gain by trade which it had derived from the discovery now the exportation of machinery comes within the care which we have just described if the fact be that by allowing to foreigners our participation in our machinery we enable them to produce any of our leading articles of export at a lower money price than we can sell those articles it is certain that unless we possess as great an advantage in the production of the machinery itself as we have in the production of the other articles by means of machinery the permitting of its exportation would alter to our disadvantage the division of the benefit of trade our exports being diminished we should have to pay a balance in money this would raise in foreign countries the price of everything which we import from thence while our incomes being reduced in money value would render us less able to buy those articles even if they had not risen the equilibrium of exports and imports would only be restored when either some of the latter became so dear that we could produce them cheaper at home or some articles not previously exported became exportable from the fall of prices in the one case we lose the benefit of importation altogether and are obliged to produce at home at a greater cost in the other case we continue to import but pay dearer for our imports notwithstanding what has now been observed restrictions on the exportation of machinery are not in our opinion justifiable either on the score of international morality or of sound policy it is evidently the common interest of all nations that each of them should abstain from every measure by which the aggregate wealth of the commercial world would be diminished although of this smaller sum total it might thereby be enabled to attract itself a larger share and the time will certainly come when nations in general will feel the importance of this rule and will so direct their approbation and disapprobation as to enforce observance of it moreover a country possessing machines should consider that if a similar advantage were extended to other countries they would employ it above all in the production of those articles in which they had already the greatest natural advantages and if the former country would be a loser by their improvements in the production of articles which it sells it would gain by their improvements to which it buys the exportation of machinery may however be a proper subject for adjustment with other nations on the principle of reciprocity until by the common consent of nations all restrictions upon trade are done away a nation cannot be regarded to abolish those from which she derives a real advantage without stipulating for an equivalent the case which we have just examined is an example of how remarkable a manner every cause which materially influences exports operates upon the prices of imports according to the ancient theory of the balance of trade and to the associations of the generality of what are termed practical men to this day the sole benefit derived from consumers consists in the exports and imports are rather an evil than otherwise political economists seeing the folly of these views are clearly perceiving that the advantage of commerce consists and must consist solely of the imports have occasionally suffered themselves to employ language evincing inattention to the fact that exports though unimportant in themselves are important by their influence on imports so real and extensive is this influence 
that every new market which is opened for any of our goods, and every increase in the demand for our commodities in foreign countries, enables us to supply ourselves with foreign commodities.